Sweet, thank you. Take a seat, um, and if you guys have not turned there yet, please do turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we are closing out our series um, in 1 Peter this morning. Do you feel like you always need to get the last word? In a discussion, a debate, an argument, are you not satisfied until you end the conversation on your terms with the last words? See, if if you don't fit into that category, I'm sure even as I ask those questions, people immediately pop into your head of the person that every time you have a conversation with them, it's always fighting for the last word. And the question is, why do we strive to have the last word? Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, for many of us, it comes down to a sense of control. Having the last word asserts some sort of control over that interaction. Oftentimes, it's a feeling of some sort of dominance or moral superiority over the situation. And the reality is, a lot of times, there's a desire to get the last word even when you know what you're saying is wrong. There's something satisfying about ending a discussion on your own terms. Yet the majority of the time when we get the last word, it's actually at the expense of others. It's at the expense of relationships. I'll be honest, I've never heard somebody say, yeah, in my top five traits of a significant other or a friendship, I want somebody that is always getting the last word. I've never heard that. Yet people constantly strive to get the last word because it usually, I mean, when they usually strive, it actually pushes people away from them instead of pushing people towards them. See, we have this desire to get the last word. And I really believe that, it, that in today's passage, Peter actually completely pushes against this thought process, this desire. See, rather, as Christians, I would argue that, that we don't need to be people that strive to get the last word because we have Christ. And, and we'll see today that Christ and Christ alone is actually the one that gets the last word. And and unlike us, when it comes to our desires and our motives for the last word, God's desire and motive for the last word is his glory and our good. You see, his last word is good. And and today we close out the book of 1 Peter. And Peter finishes his letter by exhorting and encouraging the Christians in Asia Minor. And now thousands of years later, we as followers of Christ, also get that same encouragement. You see, his encouragement is rooted in having the future that we know impacts our current reality. You see, he urges us as Christians to cling to the chief shepherd, for he gets the last word. And, and we'll see through our text how it kind of breaks down into three categories of what this clinging to the chief shepherd looks like. We see how he lays it out in in these godly elders that he's speaking to. 
We see how it's laid out through our humility clinging to Jesus. And lastly, we see and actually resistance itself, resisting the devil, how that brings us to clinging to God. Cling to the chief shepherd, for he gets the last word. Verse 1 through 5 says, So I ex- exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. See, Peter begins his closing remark by speaking to the elders, by speaking to those that are leading the churches in Asia Minor. And he ultimately says, hey, I, I, I am an elder like you guys. And I have experienced the suffering of Christ as well as the sufferers for Christ. And I'm someone who knows I will participate in the coming glory when God returns. And so he, he wants to leave these church leaders and members with, with encouragement. He's ultimately saying, in the light of persecution that we are experiencing and we know we will continue to experience, here's a call to comfort. Here's a call to trusting in God. And, and so in many ways, as I preach through this first section, I mean, it's, it's preaching to the elders of this church. It's preaching to Doug and Andy and Matt and Jacob and Josh and myself, as well as those in this room that, that strive to, to one day be an elder. Take heed to these words as he speaks to the motivation and the heart posture that we as elders ought to have towards our people. See, Peter shows that the primary role of an elder is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Those two key terms, shepherd and flock of God. See, the the call to shepherd is this call to feed and tend the sheep. Jesus actually had a conversation with Peter in which he told him those exact things. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Okay, then feed and tend my sheep. You see, the shepherd nourishes and protects the flock. The sheep are in his care, and so he cares for them and cares for them well. And and shepherding ultimately comes through the faithful preaching of and preserving of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, a key reformer, he said, Therefore, to tend them is nothing else than to preach the gospel, by which souls are nourished, made fat and fruitful. Since the sheep thrive upon the gospel and the word of God, there is no other office of an elder. To be a shepherd to the sheep is to be faithful to the gospel proclamation. And who who are we to shepherd? We're to shepherd the flock 
God. You see, ultimately, elders are our under-shepherds, where Christ is the true chief shepherd. It is God's flock, not our own. It's not my church. It's not Doug's church. It's, it's God's church in which we serve. You see, the term used for Christ in here, the chief shepherd, is actually an overseer of the shepherds when a flock is too large to be attended by one. See, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd overseeing all other shepherds in his care. Oh, there's underlings of Christ. Our positions of leadership are actually a responsibility, not a privilege to advance their status. An elder is Christ's servant for Christ's people. And the ground, grounded in this truth, first and foremost, this is the call to exercise oversight. It's acknowledging what a shepherd is and proclaiming the gospel, acknowledging that it is for God's people. This is how you ought to exercise oversight. And so elders lead out of this truth and exercise authority the way Scripture has called them to. And it's because of this mindset that, that Peter's able to tell those that are younger to submit or subject yourselves to the elders. And we can acknowledge that younger constitutes the overwhelming majority of people in this room. I mean, I'm 29, and I think I'm, like, old in this church. See, this is a call to respect the elders that God has given, has sovereignly placed to faithfully care for you and faithfully preach the gospel. As we pursue Christ and faithfully preach the gospel, join us in that. That is the call of the elder. It's the call of the people. And he lays out the three ways, three characteristics of oversight. He says, willingly, eagerly, and by example. Verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Ultimately, he's saying elders should not be stepping into this because they feel forced. That's just it's what I got to do. Okay, I'll step into it. No, he's saying there's a willingness, a drive, a desire to step into this role and to embrace the role that God has given you. Verse 2 also says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Saying elders should not pursue this role out of greed or desire for financial gain. Not for notoriety, but in eagerness to serve. He's almost saying, don't get into this role for money or for clout. To be the next famous, cool pastor. Rather, he's saying, step into it eagerly to serve God and his people. It's an eagerness to give, not a desire to get. And lastly, he calls us as elders to lead by example. This is not domineering in verse 3 over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. He's calling us to lead by example. Saying, what does it look like to be one of Christ's sheep? Hey, well, look at us and follow us as we walk the path God has given us. See, being an elder is not about exerting the ability to boss people around, but it's to exemplify the character of God under our charge. You see, the elder is a shepherd, 
not a cowboy. A cowboy sits among the, above the flock and leads the flock oftentimes by force, driving them. Yet as a shepherd, we actually stand on the level of our sheep and walk amongst them and before them and guide them. We're on the same level as the sheep. Ebony Clowney said, sheep cannot be managed by telecommunications. We need to smell like our sheep. You know, elders need to be in and among their people. They need to be known by the people and actually be seen as an example. And the question is, why? Why are leaders to lead that way? You know, not only because we follow the way of Christ, but because we know that Christ gets the last word. And that last word is unfading crowns of glory. Verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so Peter points to Christ's return. And he says, when that day comes, when he comes in glory, power, and might, he will come to the elders. And he will reward and honor them for being faithful to the flock that he has entrusted for them. You see, Peter contrasts the leafy crowns given in the Greco-Roman world to athletes and to military personnel and victories with an unfading crown of glory given to the elders. I mean, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You contrast the things of the world and the glory there versus the things of God and the glory to come. See, Peter encourages elders to faithfully shepherd in these trying times, knowing that they're experiencing persecution and will experience more to come. But he's ultimately saying you can be confident because your victory is sure, for your victory depends on Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd of his people. See, we praise the Lord that we can be confident that Christ is returning. Because in his scripture, in Revelation, it says, surely I am coming soon. We can cling to that. And so, so elders, cling to Jesus. And cling to the gospel that is good news for us. That refreshes us every single day. May we willingly and eagerly lead by example until Christ, our chief shepherd, returns. And members, cling to the gospel that we proclaim week in and week out. Cling to God's providence in providing you with under-shepherds to feed and tend for your souls. And then Peter transitions from talking to a specific people the elders and those that are younger, and now goes wide breath to speaking to all of us, of urging us to cling to Christ in humility. Pick up in five and read through seven. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The call is to clothe ourselves in humility. And the image of clothing kind of runs deep throughout Scripture. Um, it's often used as, as a word picture, and, and people have made claims that this is pointing to a, an apron of a slave or a symbolic dress of a religious man or actually an apron that a herdsman would wear, kind of pointing back to the motif of a shepherd. And though there's many different images, we know that the bulk claim is that this is a dominant theme and value in the life of a Christian. It's paramount to being a Christian is humility. See, even the fact that he uses the word clothe reveals that humility ought to be the forefront of the life. It got to be what separates us and what makes us known. You know, I've never heard of somebody wearing invisible clothes. Therefore, humility ought to be seen on the individual. It ought to be what we are known for, what we wear from foot to head. As Strainer says, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And humility is not just a, a blessing for those you interact with, but it actually blesses you as well. Peter makes that clear when he quotes Proverbs 3 and says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, when we compare and contrast God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble, I think it's pretty obvious to know what side of the equation we want to be on opposition to God or in God's grace. See, we grow in our humility by clinging to Jesus. The person that clings to the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot help but be humbled. For Christ came to a hard-hearted and rebellious people. He came to a people whose only wage in life was death. For Romans proclaims the wages of sin is death. See, he loved them when they loved him not. Their disdain for him led Christ to the cross. And even on the cross, with nails in his hands and nails in his feet, I mean, he said, forgive them, they know not what they do. He loved them even then. And praise God for that love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all those who call on the name of Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. For God's gift of eternal life through Christ our Lord is a free gift. See, there's nothing I can do to deserve it. There's nothing I can do to purchase it. For my goodness will never be enough. If I take my goodness, if I take all the monies in the world, it's literally but a drop in the ocean in comparison to what I need. See, dead in our sins, yet made alive in Christ. Rebels of the crown and to kids of the king, wearing crowns of glory. From beginning to end, the gospel is Christ. 
called by Christ, saved by Christ, secured by Christ. So what do we have to boast in when all that we have is our sinfulness? It's all we bring to the table. We boast in Christ and Christ alone because he is the finisher and founder of our faith. So we cling to Jesus. And we recognize we did not create ourselves, let alone save ourselves. And as we cling to the gospel, we recognize we are nothing apart from Christ, and yet we are everything in Christ. He is the giver of every good gift. So what do we have to boast in besides Christ? Nothing. See, he tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That expression um, actually points back to God as deliverer. He's actually pointing back to the story of Exodus, of God delivering his people out of slavery and leading them to the promised land. And, And Peter's ultimately saying, in the same way as God delivered his people of old, Israel out of Egypt, he will deliver you out of slavery, out of bondage, and truly bring you to the promised land. He does not leave or forsake his people. You see, and we can humble ourselves before God. We can trust him at his word that he is deliverer because we know that God gets the last word. I mean, it says at the proper time, he may exalt you. God's last word for his people is exaltation. It's raising us up. And we need to acknowledge that the proper time actually points to the future. It points to the day of judgment and salvation. You see, Peter's not promising vindication and exaltation necessarily in this present life. We know that because we look at the world around us. And we see sin and heartache and suffering and persecution. The very people he's writing this letter to would experience arguably some of the worst persecution Christians have ever experienced under Nero. Yet he's pointing to a future, a future we can cling to, that even in the midst of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, that God's children will be exalted and eventually brought into the throne room of God to be with him forever. And you see, it's because of this. It's because we know the end that we can actually freely cast our anxieties onto God. You see, this naturally flows out of his call to humble ourselves. Because if we're we're honest with ourselves, and there's there's a caveat here for people that I know legitimately struggle with anxiety and take medication for it. But the bulk of people, when we struggle with anxiety, we can actually trace the majority of our anxiety back to some element of pride some element of lacking trust in God. We worry about our finances because we ultimately think God can't provide for me. We worry about our future because God is not sovereign and doesn't actually have a plan for my life. We worry about relationships, both platonic and intimate, because God doesn't care about me. He's actually abandoned me. 
And yet Peter says we can, we can cast our anxieties to him because he does care for you. Like God cares for you. Let that sink in. Take a moment and literally just let that sink in that God cares for you. You're one of, what, five or six billion people currently on this world. And many have come before us, and many will come after. And God cares about you. The one who created the cosmos, the one who put earth in orbit, the one who fills your lungs with breath every day cares for you. You see, our own self-care is garbage in comparison to the care he has for us. We can humble ourselves and entrust our souls to him, our everything to him, because he cares for you. We hold true to that, hold that firm in the midst of our pain and sorrow and brokenness, that God has not abandoned or left us, but is there in the midst of it, caring for our souls, as the chief shepherd cares for the sheep. Because God's hand is mighty, we can trust his power to deliver. And because he faithfully cares for us, we can actually trust him with our concerns. Because the goodness of the gospel, we can humble ourselves before him. You see, we cling to the chief shepherd through godly elders, through hum humility, and lastly, through resistance. Five, five verses eight through 11 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that at the same time, same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffer a little while, the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. The call, be sober-minded and watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Christians, we are to be sober-minded. He's saying you are to be in your right mind and watchful, alert and attentive because the devil is alive and active. He's not some boogeyman of the fantasies, but he is a real reality. And the lion imagery draws upon the shepherd and sheep motif. See, the roar of a lion can easily scatter a flock of sheep in panic, especially sheep that are not ready for it, shepherds that are not ready for it. See, Peter's audience would realistically have mental pictures of a roaring and devouring lion because they would have seen firsthand in Roman amphitheaters lions take on prey and win time and time again there's a call to be sober minded and alert and, and growing up um, in many ways I feel like I had my own experience uh, with a roaring lion seeking to devour her name was Percy and she was my sister's cat 
Uh, there were many nights uh, when I would wake up um, and needed to go to the bathroom, or Lord willing, needed to go to the second floor where my parents lived, or where my parents lived, where my parents slept. <laughs> um, and I was usually groggy and half asleep, um, but as soon as I woke up and started to turn that door handle, boom, sober-minded and alert, because Percy the devil cat was <laughs> prowling the hallways. See, I don't, I don't know what Percy's deal was, but Percy was always ready to pounce in the middle of the night. And so no joke, I had to open the door, listen carefully, monitor her patterns, and always keep my eyes open. For Percy was known for taking her victims, usually me, when it was least expected. So if I was heading to my parents' room, I would literally have to build up the courage. You know, they do a couple push-ups in my room real quick. Say a prayer, and then literally sprint as fast as I could from my room to my parents' room, praying the whole time that my parents' door would be unlocked. Because if it wasn't, I was a goner. <laughs> Percy got declawed when she was young, and I think that's what just set her over the edge. And so she didn't have claws to attack with, so she just bit me. And you see, though that this story is a comical story, and it's a real story of a house cat from hell. <laughs> Peter urges the church, though, to have the same intensity when it comes to the devil. That as we creak open our door on life, are we sober-minded and alert, knowing that the devil is waiting to prowl. He's waiting to pounce in the dark places of our life. See, the devil is real. He is Christ's adversary, and therefore he is our adversary. And he wants to provoke fear and destroy us. He wants to silence our message. So we need to be ever alert and watchful. Don't fall asleep on your watch. And I think a great way to do this is to link arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, he's writing this to believers, not to one, but to many. And in many ways, it's a call to love your brothers and sisters well by being alert and sober-minded with them, helping other people not fall asleep and seeing, oh, where it looks like the devil might be prowling in somebody's life. For their good, you step into that situation, and you love them in that situation and call them into safety, into the arms of Jesus. To be sober-minded and watchful because we resist the devil. Peter emphasizes here with this word resist of an active resistance. Passivity does not combat the devil. We need to be active and on the advance. You see, through the gospel, we have the power to resist the devil. For just have we, as we have been clothed with humility, we have also been clothed with the armor of God. And we can confidently wear it. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes that are made ready, given by the gospel of grace. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and lastly, the word of the sword of truth, that is the word of God. Like we have the tools to combat the devil.
So when we wake up, may we recognize the devil is alive and active, prowling. Yet through God and his grace, we have the means and the tools to overcome the devil. We have the gospel. Well, the gospel is Satan flees. And it is in this that we can stand firm in our faith. See, we stand firm in our faith in God. We stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This firm in your faith is a clinging to the gospel. Because the gospel is unwavering. In the midst of the devil's schemes, in the midst of suffering, we cling to the fact that Christ has us. We are his sheep and known by his name. Uh, this passage is actually read in the letter uh, that, that Matt read, um, but, but I want to read it again uh, because this is a truth that we can cling to and be firm in. Um, and that's Romans 8. It'll be on the screen. It says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the God we have faith in, a God in which we cannot be separated from his love. I cling to the promises of Scripture. I cling to God and his word. See, Sam Rutherford, uh, he actually said, believe God's word and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock which ebbs and flows, but your sea. See, Christ is our rock. He is our firm foundation. And so we recognize that the ebbs and flows of our life, Christ stays the same. He stays firm. And so when we stand on him, we will not fall. Peter also shows us that, that part of this resistance, part of this calling us to be firm in our faith is actually to look at the experiences of our brothers and sisters around the world. In verse 9, he says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Ultimately, saying if we know and acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters in this country and around the world that are experiencing the same types of persecution that we are, it helps us to stand firm. It helps us to acknowledge that we are not alone. Uh, this month marks the 75th year anniversary um, of what many would probably say is the most famous uh, photograph ever taken in war. That'll be on the screen. It's the picture of six American Marines hosting up the American flag on top of Mount Saribachi on the island of Iwo Jima. And that picture has now been monumented as the Marine Corps War Memorial in Arlington, Virginia. You see, this image gets, gives us a visual of the destructiveness of war and yet gives us the hope that atop enemy territory, we as Americans were able to plant our flag 
in that ground. It gives us a hope of victory. This hope and determination is ultimately a motivation and encouragement for the home front as well as for the soldiers that were currently in battle during that day. You see, this image was quickly circulated throughout the U.S., and it led many like war-weary Americans to actually step into war and to, to cross the lines to serve in various branches of the military, as well as they were able to raise six, $26 billion in war bonds because of this picture being circulated. You see, this image of men fighting for the cause gave our nation as a whole the strength and encouragement and courage to keep fighting. As they saw what people were experiencing over there on top of that mountain, they said, I'm going to rise to the challenge. I'm going to take the call and keep going. I'm going to keep surviving. See, knowing that we have brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering like us ought to lead us to this kind of hope and determination. You see, for Christ has planted his flag in the depths of our soul, and that flag will never come out. See, if, if people are willing to do that for this country, we definitely ought to be doing it for our Lord and Savior the one that protects our soul. See, once again, we, we can cling to Christ in our resistance. We can cling to Christ because he is our king that gets the last word. And we see in this section that the last word is eternal glory in Christ. Verse 10, it says, For after you suffer a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Once again, we don't want to be deceived by the word a little while. For he is not in speaking in, in a human concept of time. Rather, it's, it's in light of eternity that this suffering is a little while. But the little while could be the eternity of, or the, the whole existence of us on this planet. Peter's focus is not on a little while. Peter's focus is on what comes after a little while. You see, we cling to Christ, we cling to the gospel, because in the end, we experience eternal glory in Christ. That's what we place our hope in. You see, when Christ returns, he calls us, his people, his sheep, into eternal glory with him. You see, he uses these four verbs of restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish to really create a rhetorical crescendo of God consummating all things. He's saying we look to the future because we know these four things will be a reality and I will be made new and I will be established amongst the people of God. It is a picture of the perfect restoration as his children will be glorified in him. And we can take this truth to the bank because as 5.11 says, to him 
be the dominion forever and ever. You see, as Peter closes his letter, he's urging and encouraging and exhorting these believers to cling to Jesus because this is the last word. And the last word is God's glory and our good. So in the midst of the here and now, look to the future knowing that that future will one day be a reality. And he concludes by Silvanus, the faithful brother as I regard him. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. See, this letter as a whole reveals the true grace of God. And it is this grace, the grace of God, that we can stand firm in. See, we can cling to the chief shepherd, because he gets the last word. Let's pray.